Now, today we're going to begin an examination of the second unit of that fivefold structure <clears throat> that begins in verse 13 with the body of the epistle to the Colossians. That first <clears throat> unit, you recall last time, consists of verses 13 and 14, first structural unit. <clears throat> And verse 15 is the beginning of the second structural unit, which will extend to verse 18a. But I want to take time to perform a deliberate review or reflection upon the language of this 15th verse in particular because of the importance of the Apostles' revelation and declaration here for our own understanding of the person of Christ Jesus. We begin with the word in Greek that he uses in this first verse, verse 15, the word for image in the statement, he, that is, the Son of God, you'll notice the antecedent, of that relative pronoun, actually, who in the better translation, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about the Son of God as the image of the invisible God. Now, I've given in your handout the Greek word as well as its transliteration E-I-K-O-N in the transliteration. And that would be pronounced icon in Greek. And so you would notice immediately the similar English-sounding word icon, which incidentally is taken directly from that Greek word that Paul uses here. Now let's think about icons. as we think about this word icon in Greek. First of all, realizing that the world of Paul and the first Christians, the Greco-Roman world, was a world awash in icons. Now, icons for us today, in general, are symbols. And so we want to think about icon as symbol at the beginning of this consideration of the word Paul uses, we most frequently encounter iconic symbols on our computers and in the cyber world that most of us are familiar with, or should I should say maybe more or less familiar with. But you'll note, you'll be aware of icons or symbols on your computer in which you push that or click on that, and a whole program is invoked as a result of that one symbol. So we are uh, used to iconic imagery, uh, particularly through uh, computer symbolism. But there is another form of iconography or iconic reality in our culture or in our world, and that is the religious context. 
where an icon is a symbolic picture or painting of a venerated person. And icons are especially common in the worship and devotion of the Eastern Orthodox communions, meaning the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Antiochian Orthodox Church, and the Eastern Rite churches as a group. Icons in their worship and devotion are paintings of venerated individuals, particularly early church individuals, church fathers of the Eastern uh, geography, Athanasius, Basil the Great, the Cappadocians, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory Nyssa, and many others, including women. The icon is a picture painted, usually upon a wooden panel, and then mounted in a place of veneration or devotion, even in the Orthodox, I'm saying Eastern Orthodox Basilica. So if you enter into an Eastern Orthodox church, you will be surrounded by the icons that surround the worshiping ceiling or walls, etc. The image on the icon or the image painted as the icon is to be distinguished from the flesh and blood reality of the person represented. For instance, the image of Athanasius is not the flesh and blood Athanasius. He's long been dead, of course, so it's impossible for that to be true. <clears throat> but this is general, this is a general indication of the symbolic character of an icon. It is not a representation of the flesh and blood reality. It's not the reality itself. It is less than the reality. It is a symbol of the reality. It is a painting or representation of the reality. Which, me, which means that we pause for a moment to assess the icon as something that is less than real. The real person is something other than the image of the icon. Athanasius, in reality, as a real flesh and blood person, is something other than the representation of himself symbolically on the iconography, on the iconic panel. To understand my point here, if by icon the meaning is symbol here in first in Colossians 1:15, if by icon the meaning is symbol, then the symbol is less than the real thing itself, less than the real thing itself. You follow that. You think, of once again, the picture on an icon, a painted icon, that is less than the flesh and blood person himself. If I would paint a picture of any of you, put it on a canvas, the painting would be less than the reality of you flesh and blood. 
You follow me? Okay? So, we're asking the question, is this the sense in which Paul is using the Greek word icon in this verse? Is, let's put it this way, is the Son of God a symbol of God? Is that what he's suggesting by the use of the word icon here? Or, shall we ask it in an alternative way? Is the Son of God a symbolic representation of God? But the essence of God, God's realness, God's actuality, God's godness is something else. Let me repeat that. Is Paul using icon in the sense that the Son of God, if icon is a symbol, the Son of God is a symbolic representation of God, but the reality of God, the essence of God, is something else. In other words, if icon or image here means symbol, then symbolic image is not reality. Symbolic image is not actuality. Symbolic image is not essence or very being. Symbolic image is not substance or divine substance. Divine divineness, it's something other. If image here is symbol, the Son of God is less than God in reality. So if Paul is suggesting by icon a symbolic relationship of the Son of God to God, if that is what he's suggesting here, then the Son of God is less than God in reality. If Jesus is a symbol of God, if the Son of God is a symbol of God, then he is less than God. Even as the icon is less than the reality. The icon of Athanasius is less than the reality of Athanasius in his real flesh and blood being. All right. So symbol is not what Paul is suggesting here. You cannot translate image here as symbol. There are those that will do this and will comment on that. But that is not what the apostle is doing because we've already indicated from the use of the comparable Trinitarian formulae in this first chapter, the and Christo, the in the Father, the in the Spirit. We've already talked about the language of equivalence between the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, so that we are already on the path to making a definition of image here or icon here, which is a definition of equivalence, not a definition of less or inferiority. Symbol would reduce the Son of God below the reality of God himself. 
Would the apostle do that? I don't think so. But we can say with respect to the implication of symbol in icon, he is not doing that. He is not doing that. Randy. might be tempted to do that. So is there a Hebrew word for image that he may be more inclined to be referring to? Or is he just using the Greek there? He's still using the Greek. And I want to I want to go through the options here and come to the final conclusion of what he is doing. So if you'll stick with me, uh, come back to me with your question if you're not satisfied later. But this is a this is a Greek exegetical matter, not Hebrew. All right, so we can <clears throat> set aside any suggestion that iconic is symbolic with respect to this issue in our text. But there's a second option. Does Paul mean by image that the Son of God is a reflection of God. As an image of you and I in a mirror is a reflection of you and I. Does Paul mean that the Son of God is a reflection of God in the sense that he reflects, the Son of God reflects what God is like, what God is like, This argument would go something like this. The Son of God is like God because he is kind like God is kind. He is patient like God is patient. He is loving like God is loving. He is moral like God is moral. You get the point? The Son of God is like God because he reflects All the good qualities of God, he shows us by reflection what God is like, but he is not God himself in reality. Like God, but not really God. You see, this distinction is stronger than symbol. But it is still a distinction which renders the Son of God less than God himself. He is like God as a reflective likeness. But he is not God in that likeness. He is not to be identified with God. He is like him, but not him. Not in divine substance, not in divine reality, not in divine being or essence, like God, but not God. So if image or icon here is reflection of God, the Son of God is less than God in reality. Now, why do I uh, take time to discuss that reflective likeness? Because that is the dominant Christology 
of the liberal Christian world today. It is the dominant view of Christ in the liberal world today. Christ Jesus is like God, but he is not God. Years ago in an ordination exam in the United Presbyterian Church USA, a graduate of Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary was standing on the floor to be examined. I stood and asked him, yes or no, is Jesus of Nazareth God? He said, no. He is like God. That was almost 40 years ago. You can imagine what it's like now. And understand that this view, which is called functional Christology, Jesus functions like God, but he is not God himself. This view of functional Christology dominates New Testament scholarship. It dominates the world of those that are writing commentaries on the New Testament. The majority of them believe that Jesus of Nazareth shows us what God is like. He is a reflection of God's kindness, goodness, patience, etc., but he is not to be identified with God. And so, I state it as I did before. If he is like God, then he is less than God. Well, is Paul suggesting that that's what he is, that's what icon means? Does icon mean he reflects the likeness of God. No, Paul is not using icon symbolically. He is not using the word icon reflectively. Paul is using this term realistically. Realistically. Paul is using icon here in its most profound an awe-inspiring sense. For icon, in Colossians 1.15, means reality. Reality. He's not like, he's really God. He's not symbol, he is God. The Son of God is God in essence. The Son of God is icon, God in substance. The Son of God is God in fullness. Now, here's how we understand that Paul has this equivalence of identity between God and the Son of God. They are both God, though there is only one God, but they are both God. They are both participating in that oneness of reality, though they are distinct with respect to personality. Yes, it is a mystery, but nonetheless, that is what the scriptures are teaching us. Paul is using this word icon with respect to the fullness of deity in Christ. And we know that that's what he means here in verse 15 because of how he fleshes this out in the rest of this letter. In other words, Paul's going to interpret what he means here in verse 15 by what he says in verse 19 and then by what he also says further in chapter 2, verse 9. So what does he say in verse 19? He says in verse 19 of this chapter, the fullness dwells in him. 
The fullness dwells in him, the pleroma in Greek. Well, what does he mean by fullness? And then when you took look at chapter 2, verse 9, and you read that verse, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. Now do you understand what Paul means by icon in verse 15 of chapter 1? You follow the unfolding pattern of the richness of the person of the Son of God as he flows it out in this epistle, as he draws out his argument about the surpassing excellence of the Son of God who is Christ Jesus. He is not only the icon, he is the pleroma, he is the pleroma of the theotetes. The theotetes is godness, deity. Look how he piles this up as he spins it out, as he unfolds it, as he unravels it. The fullness then of our understanding of who Paul says Jesus is, is that he is the reality of God, icon. He is the fullness of God, pleroma. And he is God, God, theotetos. This whole series of Greek terms, folds back upon itself. They enrich one another. Icon enriches pleroma. Pleroma and icon enrich theotetes and vice versa. There is a tremendously rich and powerful and dramatic and awe-inspiring vocabulary here which draws you into the very mystery of the being of the Trinity. You're on the brink. You're on the brink of the majesty of the triune Godhead with this language. And here, Paul affirming that reality, that actuality, that essentiality, that substantiality, consubstantial, co-essential, equally substantial, Equally essential, equally in substance God, equal in essence God, though distinct in person. That's the classic Christian doctrine of the Trinity with respect to the reality of those three persons being actually theotetos, God. Godness, Godhead, deity. So you realize that what is at stake here for the Colossians is the deity of the Son of God. And you realize that what is at stake for you in the 21st century is the deity of the Son of God. That was at stake in that question, is Jesus of Nazareth God? No, he's not. Christianity is at stake here. Colossians coming to Christ are being informed by the apostles through this letter that they have come to the reality of deity in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Why is that important to them? Why is it important for them to know that? Because their whole culture is awash 
in a plethora of competing deities who have no reality. And in their heart of hearts, all the pagan Colossians knew that it was exactly right. They knew that all those symbols and images, all those reflections and representations, all of them were really fraudulent and phony. Oh, yes, they may have venerated them. They may have bowed before them. But they didn't believe that there was any reality behind them. Paul is saying, I'm declaring to you the reality of the Godhead. But, but the Colossians might respond, but how is that reality? How is that actuality? How is that essentiality? How is that substantiality? How is that perceived? How do we know it is correct? After all, Paul, you just said he is the image of the invisible God. The invisible God. Randy. There's no pronoun with that word image. So you could translate it an image. Can't you? Why, why do you... Why is it justified? I'm not trying to... I don't have any doubts about the Trinity, all right? But this... You're opening a can of worms for me. Is it an image if he says he's the fullness of deity? Well, yeah, you go to a different text, you can do that. But in the Greek right here, it's just... It's just so an icon. There's no... Yeah, so, with it. So, so the further expansion, as I point out, when you go... From, from verse 15 to verse 19 to chapter 2, verse 9, Paul is unfolding his his teaching on what this image means. He's giving you the full sense of what that image is. So here in verse 15, verse chapter 2, verse 9, is interpreting verse 15. It's interpreting icon. Okay, so on the basis of later verses, you can interpret, interpret it, the image. Yes. And isn't that a good reform principle of interpretation? I can roll with that. Okay. Scripture interprets scripture? Right. Yes. I'm thinking there must be other scriptures that explain image too, other than just this one. Well, we want to stick with this one because this is the one we're working with. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we're we're spreading out the implication of it through three verses to fill up. So we said to use the pleroma, the fullness of the meaning of the term. It's such a loaded term in modern interpretation that it's problematic. Yes. So keep in mind what we've concluded, namely that this term icon is describing the reality of the godness of the Son of God in its fullness, in his fullness as godness. Okay, so the Son of God is deity in essence, the Son of God is deity in substance, the Son of God is deity in being, the Son of God is not a symbol of God, he is God, the Son of God is not like God as a reflection of what God is like, he is God. 
The Son of God is not other than or different from God as symbol is other than the reality. The Son of God is essential deity. The Son of God is not other than or different from God as a reflection is other than the actuality. The Son of God is substantial deity. The Son of God is same in essence, essence, same in being, same in substance with deity. The Son of God is same in essence, same in being, same in substance with the godness of God. The Son of God is image of God in fullness of Godhead. Co-essential, consubstantial, co-equal godness, same as not other than the deity of God the Father, same as not other than the godness of God the Holy Spirit. All right, now there's a practical element here. There's an element so practical that it affects you as it affects the Colossian Christians, as it affects all Christians through the ages. Past and present and future. Paul's Christology here is a high Christology. It is a Christ is God Christology. It is a son of God is God Christology. Now you say, why are you beating this dead horse, Dennis? And we always believe this. Well, I'm happy that you believe it. But you must understand that even in the Christian world, many do not believe it. And so I want to give you some ammunition. I want you to give you some support. I want you to give you some strength exegetical strength out of this epistle for what you believe, what you have accepted. Paul's Christology is a Christology that reveals what Jesus, the Son of God, revealed about himself. Now, how he knew that is a matter for another discussion. I have alluded to that in previous comments on this epistle his time in the desert of Arabia. But these are the conclusions. Jesus revealed about himself that he is co-essential deity. He is consubstantial deity. He is deity in fullness. I and my Father are one. He is God in his person. I and my Father are one God. Paul's high Christology here distinguishes him from all low Christologies, ancient and modern. These are defective views of the person of Christ. They uniformly regard him as less than God, a mere man or a mere creature who is functionally like God as a creature reflects what God is like, or a symbol of what God ought to be like, but he never does function as God in fullness. Neither is the fullness of deity or the fullness of divine being or essence or substance in him. These lower Christologies, functional Christologies, maintain that Christ is not the same in being 
not the same in essence, not the same in substance with the Godhead. Rather, he is other than or different in being, other than or different in essence, other than or different in substance than God himself. As I said before, these lower Christologies reject the deity of Christ. That candidate on the floor of that Presbyterian exam was rejecting the deity of Christ. And having rejected the deity of Christ, these lower Christologies of necessity also reject, and here's the practical issue, if you reject the deity of Christ, if you reject the godness of Jesus of Nazareth, if you reject it, you also reject the substitutionary atonement of Christ. How so? Well, first of all, you're biased against it automatically because it's a bloody right and you don't want a God who requires blood. You reject it also because as a modern person, you don't believe in a God of wrath, so you reject that. But the rejection of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ so well described and, and uh, uh, written about by Anselm of Old in his book, Cordeus Homo, Why the God-Man, in rejecting the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, here is the issue. Sin is a debt. It is a debt of infinite proportion. To pay that debt, you need a person of infinite proportion. If he's not God on the cross, he's not dying for an infinite penalty. He's not dying for an infinite punishment in proportion. If he's not God on that cross, he's only dying his own death. He's only dying for himself. Do you see how crucial this is. And you also see that having rejected the deity of Christ, it's very easy to reject the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And all the liberals do that. They do the one and the other. It goes together for them. They see it quite clearly. The cross becomes an emblem of selflessness, an emblem of lovingness, although loving for what sake, I don't know. This cross becomes a symbol. The blood of Jesus becomes a symbol. It becomes mere symbol. It becomes mere reflection of something like something in the world, something human. But it doesn't reflect the infinite person who hangs there, paying an infinite debt penalty for those that don't hang there or hang there in him, united to him even in that atoning death. Second of all, the practical issue is that sin is a debt of eternal duration. Eternal duration. You need an eternal person to cancel a penalty of eternal duration. Only an eternal person could endure that penalty and cancel it, annul it. Pay it in full. He must be God or your debt cannot be paid unless you take an eternity to pay it. Do 
Do you want to accept that bet? You want to buy that wager? You want to roll the dice and take your chance? That there is no eternal hell to pay an eternal penalty in your person? Oh, isn't there some other person that could pay it for you? Yes, there is. The Son of God has paid it for you. And it's because he is God that when he paid it, the eternity of your hellishness is canceled. You don't have to pay it in eternal damnation. Now, there is good news indeed because of who the person that hangs on that cross is. For if he isn't, then you're going to have to pay. But he is, praise his blessed name, he is. And so the infinitude, infinity of your debt has been canceled and the eternal duration of your debt has been canceled because an eternally infinite person, namely Jesus of Nazareth, who is God of God, very God of very God, he has paid it all. This is not a theological exercise, merely. This is not just an interesting discussion amongst harebrained theologians. This is in your catechisms and confessions. But it is there because of who he is, making what he does absolutely essential to you. If he is not essential, Godhead, Godhead, then you cannot essentially be saved. Paul is encouraging the hearts and minds and souls of these Colossian Christians to understand the height and length and depth and breadth of what has been revealed in the person and work of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of, of the Lord. This richness is yours. Your prayers ought to reflect that thanksgiving, that you thank the Son of God that he is God, and you thank the Son of God that he is an infinite person as God is, an, is infinite. And you thank the Son of God that he's an eternal person as God is eternal. And you thank him because you have had him pay your eternal penalty and cancel it, written in blood. This is rich food for thought and rich food for meditation and pondering. Yes, you will come up against the barriers of mystery. I acknowledge that all of us do when we ponder it, when we try to penetrate into the depths of it. But nonetheless, at the level in which we can conceptualize it, we can assimilate it, at the level in which we can believe it. It is such... And assuring such 
a hopeful, such a redemptive practice and reflection. So, in spite of what may seem like an intimidating matter, the bottom line very simply is that the icon of God is God. The fullness of God. The fullness of the Godness of God. And that icon is the Son of God, who is the Redeemer, verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, who is the Redeemer of his saints. Randy, you've been patient. You may have mentioned this and I missed it, but my understanding of the need for infinite payment is predicated upon our transgression being an infinite transgression. That is right. That's that's a presupposition behind me making the statement that sin is an infinite debt as well as an eternal debt because sin itself incurs such an eternal debt. One sin. One small sin is an eternal insult to an eternal God. Any questions? Yes, Ben. Those who hold to this reflective idea of Christ, do they still refer to the Trinity? Do they still use the word Trinity to refer to God? Some of them will talk about the Trinity as a symbolic doctrine. They will not talk about it as essential doctrine. So the result is that many of them who take that reflexive view are, in fact, Unitarian. That is, they reduce God to one, one God in one person. <clears throat> if, they, if they hold on to the Trinitarian language, it is for the sake of its symbolic importance in the tradition of Christianity as it's unfolded through the centuries. In itself, that's dishonest, but in, in some ways, it at least leaves them open to considering it. It's considering the deeper and the more orthodox approach. It's, see, it's seeping into evangelicalism. It's starting to come. Uh, it, it's, it, usually the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ had been a barrier against liberalism in evangelical circles. But liberalism is, is, is encroaching into evangelicalism uh, partly because of the pressure of the culture, partly because of the progress of liberal religion, partly because evangelicals don't like to be behind the times. They want to keep up with what's going on in the culture, and that means they want to keep up with the, uh, the scientific theology that's popular in the culture. So this point about, <clears throat> I, did, I haven't used these terms before in, <clears throat> in this session, but I'll use them here now as a result of Ben's question. <clears throat> this reflective Christology or functional Christology, as I, as I label it, that's the label that these people use in their literature and in their articles to describe what they're saying about Jesus of Nazareth. He functions like God, but he's not God. Okay, that view is the dominant view of Christ in the Christian culture today, when I'm taking liberalism as broadly dominating Christian culture. <clears throat> On the other side, the opposite of that uh, <clears throat> functional Christology is ontic Christology. Ontic meaning that Christ is the being from ontos, a Greek word which means being or existence. 
So we have orthodox Christology is ontic Christology. Jesus is the being of the fullness of deity. Colossians 2, 2 9. <clears throat> the modern Christology is functional Christology. Jesus functions like God. He shows us what God is like, but he's not to be identified as God himself. So it's the ongoing uh, evolution or devolution of the deity of Christ. In the 19th century, the liberal said, Jesus of Nazareth is not God, he's a good person. In the 20th century, it became unsophisticated to say he's merely a good person, it was, but, but still saying he's not God, but he shows us what God is like. That was a little different than just saying he's a, he's a mere exemplar. Now we're getting into the postmodern age, and now the worm is going to turn. My prophecy is that Jesus is going to become an evil person eventually to the broad liberal world. They will transform him into a virtual uh, demon himself. It's, it's already beginning. You're getting little smatterings of it already. But the figure of Jesus will not cast this kind of charisma over the culture that it has in the past as the culture becomes unleashed in its hostility to Christianity. And sooner or later, the hostility to Christianity has to fall upon Christ himself. But you hold fast to what has been delivered by the Apostle Paul and to what has been delivered to all the saints, because this is the, this is the testimony of the Catholic small C church. The church for 2,000 years has believed these things in part upon Paul's interpretation, Paul's exegesis here, Paul's own doctrine here. So we hold on to what the scriptures teach as our doctrine, as our view of Christ. And you see the practical issue. You see what's at stake for you as a person. You see that if he isn't God, he can't save you. It's impossible. He might be a good example for you. You might want to be like him as an example, but he can't save you. He can't pay your penalty. He can't pay for your sin. Well, then my sin doesn't deserve that. Well, so you retreat further, you see? You see the domino effect? You see what begins to fall? If you reject the deity of Christ, you see what's at stake. Your faith will collapse. Ultimately, you'll be believing in a mere man. And a mere man, meaning he's only a man. He's nothing but a man. That's the Jesus of Jesus Christ superstar. He can't save. So, if you want a savior, believe Paul. If you want a savior, believe Colossians. If you want a savior, believe the church universal and Catholic through 2,000 years, which has affirmed that he is God of gods, very God of very God. I'm quoting the Nicene Creed there, of course. <clears throat> but that's what's at stake. And so you can come up for air and take a break. All right, we do have some tension here, at least apparent tension in this 15th verse. If he is the being of the invisible God, as we've indicated the Son of God is, how can he manifest that reality visibly? We must grapple with the visible, invisible interface which we have discussed before, but specifically at this point in our thinking, we ask ourselves, 
just <clears throat> for the purposes of stimulating ourselves, can we see the essence of God? No. No, he's invisible. Can we see the being of God, the oneness of God in its reality? No, it's invisible. Can we see the substance of God? No, it is invisible. Well, then how do we resolve this tension? If he is the image of the invisible God, what's the resolution? The Apostle John says, no man has seen God at any time. Chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen the essence of God. No man has seen the being of God. No man has seen the godness of God. No man has seen the substance of God. Paul here then poses an apparent conundrum. What's the resolution? It's in chapter 2, verse 9. Now, you'll notice that I kind of tricked you a little bit when I read that verse earlier. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells, and I stopped there because I wanted to leave this and the rest of the verse until now, dwells in bodily form. There's the resolution. What is it that resolves the tension of the invisible person of God and his visibility? It is the incarnation. The Son of God incarnate. The word incarnation means in the flesh. It's a compound Latin word, Carnal, we know the word carnal, refers to fleshly. Incarnation means in the flesh. Son of God becomes flesh. The fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Here is Paul's emphasis upon the incarnation. Now, the Apostle John, in that first chapter, which I cited, says that no man has seen God at any time, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that the only begotten Son has explained him. And the Greek word there is exegesito. It comes from the word for exegesis. The Son of God interprets God for us, explains him for us, shows him to us. He is actually the very image of him, reality of him. Or to go earlier in John's uh, gospel to the 14th verse of that first chapter, The Word, or the Son of God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's a classic statement of John's doctrine of the Incarnation. Here, in Colossians 2.9, is a classic statement of Paul's doctrine of the Incarnation. It is the Incarnation of God the Son that makes the invisible God visible to us. The Incarnation makes the invisible God visible to us, the visible second person of the Godhead, the visible, <clears throat> invisible Son of God, uh, the invisible Son of God, visible to us. All right, now that brings us to that pattern of the invisible and visible, which we referred to last time. <clears throat> and on the second page of your handout, <clears throat> I want to think for a while with you about that pattern with respect to the Son of God himself. <clears throat> now, I've laid it out in three lines. But we'll take the first two as a start and deal with the third one after 
We've examined the first two lines. <clears throat> I've given you a clue with the first word after invisible on the first line, namely the word eternal. <clears throat> the invisible Son of God, eternal. Corresponding to the visible, which is a blank on your outline, what word would go or would fit there? The visible would be not the eternal, but the temporal, correct. All right, so we're thinking of the Son of God as invisible, eternal in one aspect, but temporal, visible in another aspect. So what would be the next blank after eternal? What would we be thinking of there in terms of the invisibility of the eternal Son of God? Notice this is before his temporality. So how would we label his eternality in his invisible dimension before his temporality? Hmm. Is he alive? Yes. He is alive. Is he alive in a temporal arena? No, he's not. So what would we put there? We would put his pre-existence, meaning he's invisible in his eternal pre-existence. Now, by existence, we don't mean divine existence here. We mean temporal existence. Before him coming into space and time by way of what word would correspond to pre-existence on the line visible? After temporal, what line, what word would you put in there in the blank under pre-existence? He becomes visible by incarnation. That's the word we want. Good. So pre-existence over against incarnation. All right now, with respect to the next blank on the top line, we're thinking about his nature. What kind of nature does he have in that invisible air arena? What were you going to say, Kay? You looked like you had something on uh, ready to say. No? Okay. What kind of nature does he have in that eternal dimension? Divine nature, exactly. Very good, Judy. Thank you. All right, now, underneath that, the line opposite incarnate, the next line beyond incarnation, his visibility consists of, he has a human nature. Is that all? He has a divine and a human nature. So he adds to his divine nature in the incarnation a nature that he didn't previously have, a human nature. And he unites them inseparably. It's called the hypostatic union laid out by the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. All right, now the next line after divine nature refers to his glory. He is glorious in himself. He is glorious in himself, in that invisible 
preexistent dimension. Well, what about that line next to, on the visible line, next to divine and human nature? Thinking about glory again. He humbles himself, but does he have glory? It is hidden until the resurrection. So he's glorified by resurrection. There's a preview of that at the Mount of Transfiguration, but that glory is present on Easter Sunday morn because he shines radiantly, brilliantly. He glorified in resurrection. And up to the top line again, this invisible, eternal, preexistent, divine nature, glorious in himself, is provisionally eschatological. All right, now that's fancy. Provisionally eschatological. Provisionally, meaning not permanently. Provisionally eschatological, meaning he is in that glory realm. He is in that preexistent dimension. He is in that eternal dimension. But he is so provisionally. Strange to think that way. But you realize that that is so. Why? Because the line underneath it is his entering into time and space as a semi-eschatological being. That is, he takes upon himself the human nature, but already has that divine nature, which is provisionally eschatological, that is, it doesn't mean it's not perfect. I don't mean that. But it's provisional in that state of his existence. Because he's going to add that human nature which brings him into a semi-eschatological world. It is partly now and not yet world. All right, so. Yes, go ahead, Kay. He, okay, he, he, in, he in that world, he is in the eschatological realm, right? He's in the heavenly realm, okay? So heaven and eschatological are synonymous here. So is he permanently in that realm in, in his being? Coming back again. Is he there without, he's there without his body, without his human body, right? So... Yes. He's provisionally eschatological, and in the incarnation he becomes semi-eschatological. Just like you are semi-eschatological. He becomes part of a now-not-yet pattern, right? Okay? Just like you are part of a now-not-yet pattern. Does it help you when I explain it that way? Yeah, you see the relationship between yourself and him, and that's even better. Good. All right, now that leaves us for the bottom line. He's invisible again, isn't he? Okay, so he goes from invisible, pre-existent, from all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, okay? Then he becomes visible, but then he returns to the invisible dimension. See? Whom having not seen, you love. We don't see him. He's not visible to us now, except to the eye of faith. So what do we put down in that blank line next to invisible? 
permanent or eternal again. He's back into the eternal dimension. What do we put under incarnation? Is his incarnate flesh still with him? Yes. Is it seated at the right hand of God? Yes. Is it there forever? Yes. Is he ever going to give it up? No. All right. So he has an eternally incarnate existence. In the temporal dimension, we could say it was temporally incarnate, but not after his glorification, not after his resurrection. He's an eternal, eternally incarnate existence. This is very important because in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, it's the difference between Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists. All right. Next. Under the divine and human nature in the visible aspect, is that divine and human nature still there? He still possesses it in glory. He still possesses it. So he has an eternal theanthropic existence. All right, now this is a fancy way, theanthropic, compound word, theos anthropos. You know about anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. Theos, study of God, theology. God-man, theanthropic, T-H-E-O-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-I-C, theanthropic. He's a God-man in union, God and man in union. All right, now he has an eternal theanthropic existence back in this invisible dimension. He'll never be other than that theanthropic being. All right, next. He was glorified in resurrection. Now, his existence is the existence in that invisible dimension of eternal resurrection glory. He has that resurrection glory by virtue of rising up in time and space, but he has taken that into an eternal dimension. And in fact, he's leading the way for you to have the same experience when your body is raised up. Now the last one. Notice, at the top, on the invisible line, provisionally eschatological. On the visible line, semi-eschatological. What do we put on the invisible line, on the third line, which fits his condition or his state now? Consummately eschatological. Consummately eschatological. Because he's gone through the consummation. What are the consummate eschatological realities? Resurrection of the dead, final judgment, entrance into glory, entrance into heaven or to hell. He's gone through all of that, hasn't he? It's over for him. So in his present state of existence, even though it's invisible, he is the consummated believer. He's the consummated savior. He's the consummated person. He's already consummated the history of redemption in himself. And so having finished it himself, he's finished it for you. You have nothing to fear about the future. You have nothing to fear about the second coming. You have nothing to fear about the consummation. The consummation is a sense all over for you because Jesus has taken care of it. He's joined you to himself in that consummate dimension. All right, so 
When we think about Paul's statement here, he is the image of the invisible God. He is drawing the Colossian believers into the paradigm of Christ himself, which is the paradigm very similar to the believer or to the Christian or to the sinner's paradigm. For instance, we could place ourselves on these three lines. What we were on the first line by way of origin, what we are now by way of living between the times, and what we are when we expect the consummation. Jesus takes upon himself identification with the very same paradigm that falls to us. He takes upon himself the moving from his original state and condition into the sinful world of time and space in which we are very much aware. We are conscious of living in it. And he he takes that dimension upon himself and then he redeems his people out of it. He takes them and reverses their condition. And you know that that's what you need. Your original condition in the fallen state must be reversed. It must be changed. It must be transformed, transformed or transferred or translated, as Paul says in verse 13 of this letter, of this epistle, of chapter 1. He transferred you out of that kingdom of darkness, transferred you into the kingdom of light. Jesus enters into the paradigm of human existence. He enters into the paradigm of even sinful human existence as one who knew no sin, but is made to be sin who knew no sin. He takes it on himself. He becomes not only your substitute, he becomes your very identity. So that your identity must respond to him. Your identity must be in him. Your identity for eternal life must be in his eternal life. Your identity for an eternal existence must be in his eternal existence. Your identity in his in, in resurrection hope is in his eternal resurrection glory. And so on. So my point here about this language of the apostle, a visible and invisible drama, is to, he is reminding the Colossians that they've been drawn into a great mystery. It is the mystery of the incarnation of the invisible God, God the Son, in order to grant them the life of that God, eternal life, in order to grant them the dimension of that God, heaven itself, in order to grant them the forgiveness of that God, complete eternal cancellation of debt, guilt, duration, and and, uh, uh, extent. Aggravation. All right, now, we've talked about the narrative autobiography of the Apostle. And we've looked back to a particular event in Paul's life when we've used that language, the narrative autobiography of the Apostle. What event have we been talking about when we've used that language? The Damascus Road. Very good, very good. See, you're listening to me. I'm glad. All right. Now, the Damascus Road experience. What did he see? What did he first see? 
Yes, he saw the glory light of the new creation. What he saw was the light that put him down on the ground, the light that blinded him. The first thing that he sees is the dimension, the atmosphere, the arena. He sees the glory light. All right, next, who did he see? He saw Jesus as glorified, as glorified as as Lord, yes, as Savior, yes. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. He sees him as resurrected, right? Yes, he sees him as raised up. All right. So he's and in First Corinthians nine one, he says. I have seen Jesus. Have I not seen Jesus? He says, I saw him. So he's, he's seen the person of Jesus, risen person of Jesus. Okay? And in first, and in 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 8, last of all, he appeared to me. So Paul is affirming the fact that he saw the risen Christ. He saw the person central to the new creation. He first sees the atmosphere, the glory light. The, the arena of that world, that new creation world. Then he sees the person who is central to that word, world, the glorious Lord of the new creation, who is the visible image of the invisible God. He sees that. He sees that. So what he saw, he's now recounting to the Colossians. What he experienced, he's now using as the basis for his drawing the Colossians into the mystery of the narrative of the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of the invisible God, and his own union, his being drawn into it, his being changed by it, his being transformed by it. You see, the story of Paul on the Damascus Road is behind the unit's of the structure of this first chapter. The story of Paul seeing the glory of that arena is in verses 13 and 14. The person who was the central of that glory arena is now described in verses 15 and following. And what's he going to do in 18b? He's going to talk about the glory of that person as the firstborn from the dead, the resurrection identity of the person of that arena. Why is he stepping through this paradigm this way? Because he's laying out the wonder of the new creation in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, to the Colossian believers, because it's what he experienced. The drama that he experienced is the drama he's affirming to them and, and drawing them, inviting them to experience. My union with this arena, this glory light, my union with the person of this arena, this invisible Son of God, this, this invisible God the Son who has displayed himself on the Damascus Road to me, that draws you into that same drama, into that same relationship. Behind the narrative of the letter behind the uh, language of the epistle 
not mere doctrinal categories. It is the new creation categories. This is the world of the new creation that he sees. This is the light of the new creation that he sees. This is the wonder of the new creation that he sees. And he writes about it. He he places it underneath the language of this letter. And he's not done, as we're not done. Because we've only scratched the surface even of this second unit. So we'll have to put up the re- put off the rest of the riches of this section to our next time. <clears throat> but you, you understand that there is a narrative sequence in forming the order of the units of the structure of this chapter. And it is the narrative sequence of Paul's own narrative experience on the road to Damascus. He sees the light of glory. You have been transferred out of darkness. He sees the invisible Son of God, and he sees him uh, before him in his resurrected glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one that you see by faith. I saw him. I saw him in, the, in, in real life. But he is the one that you see by faith. And so on. He's going to continue to unfold this to the end of this uh, first chapter. All right, now one minor point here. There have been many heretics in the history of church, history of the Christian church down through the ages, who have said that Jesus is a creature. And that phrase, firstborn of creation, means that he's born like a creature is born. A variation on that theme, he is the son of God as created or made like all human creatures are children or sons and daughters of God. In other words, Jesus isn't God again. He's a created being. He's been made And that's what firstborn of creation means here. He was first made at creation. Let me read to you something that Athanasius said. Athanasius was the redoubtable opponent of the early advocates of this view that Jesus is a creature, namely the Arians, the followers of Arius the heretic. This is what Athanasius wrote. If all the creatures were created in him, he is other than the creatures. And he is not a creature, but the creator of the creatures. You can't go to the very next verse, namely, verse 16, in him or by him all things were created and then maintain that he's a creature. Creatures don't create Creatures, creators create creatures. In order to make something out of nothing, or to make a creature, uh, once again, out of nothing, takes creative power. Jesus is being affirmed here. The Son of God is being affirmed here. The, The image of the invisible God is being affirmed here as not a creature, explicitly. Otherwise, as Athanasius points out, He could not create. Well, then what do we do with this word firstborn? It refers to rank. He is first in rank. Notice he gives a synonym 
at the end of this unit in verse 18a, he is the head of the body. He is the firstborn of all creation, means he's the head of all creation. He's first in rank. He's at the head of it. It doesn't refer to him being made or created as a creature. Now, I'm also nuancing or actually explaining the word creation in this verse somewhat differently than others have taken it. Usually when this verse is explained, there's an explanation that we're going back to Genesis 1. I don't think so. Paul on the Damascus Road was not going back to Genesis 1. Paul on the Damascus Road was drawn into the new creation, the new world that had dawned in the glory of the risen Christ. Paul is affirming here that creation which has been made new and reconciled, all reconciled in Christ, verse 20. It is the world of the new creation. It is not the world of Genesis 1 creation. Now, that's arguable, and you're welcome to take exception to it, but I don't know how you make sense out of the sequences here. Every one of the units in this chapter is dealing with redemption. It's dealing with salvation. It's not dealing with creation in and of itself. It's not dealing with even fallen creation in and of itself. He's not going back to Genesis 1 or 3. He's going forward to the new creation which has broken out in Christ Jesus' glorification and resurrection. Yes, to interpret it eschatologically is to interpret it in terms of eschatological creation, not protological creation. So thank you for reminding me another way of expressing it, Randy. Bless your heart. I can throw in protology and eschatology. All right, now as I said, that is arguable. But I think if you look at what he's doing in the structure of these units, as he's moving through his own experience on the Damascus Road at each point, And in verse 18b, he's going to talk about the risen Christ. He's not talking about something out of the beginning of Genesis 1 or Genesis 3. He's talking about something that's occurred in the fullness of time. So, I'm shut up to the fact that the text itself demands, Paul himself demands new creation imagery from verse 13 on. All right. That brings us... To the end of our time for today, uh, we'll take the uh, week break, as we indicated. Do you have any questions or comments at this point? Well, he means by image more of what is meant in Genesis 1 than what is meant by the Greeks' interpretation of the word image. So. He, he means by image what he says in Colossians 2.9. That's what he means by image. The fullness of the deity in bodily form. But it's not symbolic. That's no. That's way more removed than it's the reality. creation of Adam. It's, right? the rea- it's the reality. It's not symbolic. It's not reflective. It's the reality of the fullness of Godhead, the fullness of Godness in him. I've got to try to wrap on matters that 
I had before I came today. So I'm content. <laughs> well, thank you, brother, for having a tight wrap on that, or a better, tighter wrapper. Yeah, the better, tighter wrapper. I hope, I hope it, I hope it at least encourages you to think a little deeper about this language, but above all, think a little deeper about your Savior. Because you know better who he is and why he has to be who he is for your redemption. And on that point, shall, shall we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, divine, eternal Son of God, who for our sake and our salvation became man that we who are sons and daughters of men might become sons and daughters of God. We bless and thank you for every aspect of your being and person and how we bless you that through the words of the Apostle Paul, we can more deeply and richly understand who you are and why it is crucial to what you have done that you are God of gods, very God of very God, begotten, not made, one with the Father in essence and substance and usia, as the Greeks used to say. We bless you for these realities and truths. We thank you for this time to think about the word that has been revealed and our identification with it, blessing you once again that Christ identified with us so that we may identify with him. And to that end, we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.